Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Anil Polat, Fox Nomad. I'm out here in Las Vegas, spending the week mostly at the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, here in Las Vegas, which I just said, I'm so tired. Um, so yeah, so I've been out here, so this is kind of a bonus episode that's really focused on CES and CES in two parts. So the first part is going to be CES, the absolute the travel experience and what it's like to travel here and what what this whole just bonkers experience is like. And then the second part is going to be some of the best tech. And this year, actually, there was a lot of cool tech at CES. CES is generally known as a concept show, so you see a lot of products that are concepts. You don't see a lot of things that are actually going to make it into production, but this year was a little bit different on that front. But first, let me talk about the travel experience here. So I met up with some friends on the first day before CES who it was their first CES and uh, I got to go over kind of a primer for them. I said, let's meet before CES because I don't think we're going to actually get to cross paths at all during the convention because it's just full of meetings and it's just absolutely, absolutely crazy. My friend Derek, who writes Wandering Earl, was with me as well and he was just totally unprepared for what was to come at CES. So... For CES, there is basically let me explain the four floor plan for you. Basically, CES is this massive, massive. It takes place essentially 150 to 185,000 people attend CES every year, and it takes place in the Las Vegas Convention Center. Now, the convention center is these three massive halls. I keep saying massive because they're just the largest buildings. It might be actually the largest convention space in the world. I it, could actually be. So you've got these three large halls and you've got 150,000 people attending, which means pretty much all the hotels are booked. You see everybody wearing CES badges. I got here on Sunday, the convention. CES started from uh, on Tuesday, but I landed on Sunday. So at the airport, you land and at baggage claim, there are baggage, I mean, there are badge pickup areas. So the whole city is geared really towards CES for this one week. So you basically the first day to get there there's shuttle buses there's the there's the monorail and if you do attend CES i highly recommend that you either stay at a hotel that's close which is basically the venetian but the problem with the venetian is that it's already booked so i just uh, it's booked for the next couple of years throughout CES so it's hard to to get a room there but basically you want to be uh, at a hotel that's more or less close to or at least directly on the monorail line that makes getting in and out very easy. You can also walk it. It's about a 45-minute walk, so it's about uh, three kilometers, I'd say, a mile and a half. So it's not a terrible walk, and it's kind of fun to walk down the Las Vegas Strip. So it's not terrible if you're staying at one of the Strip casinos. It's, you know, you get a lot of walking in. I'm averaging about a 10, I think I was, I want to say I'm averaging about a 15K walk every day, at least on the convention days. Now, that's that's not including exercise. That's just literally just getting to the convention hall and walking there. On the convention floor, I've walked 10K every day easily as an average. It's about, what, like uh, three, four, five miles, something like that. So the monorail. So you want to be on the monorail line because it's probably the easiest way to get in and out. If you try to take an Uber, the traffic around the convention center, especially on the first and the second day, is is pretty bad. Um, so you want to be on that monorail line, and the lines there are also bad, but um, you don't end up waiting more than about 15 or 20 minutes really to, 
to get on the monorail line and then get to the convention center. And as you get off the monorail line, so as you get to the to the convention center, there are basically these three massive halls and a huge, huge outdoor area where you've got Google, you've got uh, BMW has set up shops, so they've got this huge uh, test driving area, and it's just basically just is is it, it's huge. So, so basically, the way that you want to break this up is there are these three halls: there's the north, south, and center hall, and then you've got stuff going over at the Venetian and the Sands. And the way to, that that all breaks up is basically in those three halls. Uh, one of those halls at CES, this is my second CES, but I've noticed that one of those halls is always like the best hall. And then the other halls are like one or two things that you kind of want to see, and then they're not so great. And at the beginning of most of those halls is more of the big brand stuff, the major brand stuff. And then as you as you kind of get back into the weeds in the back of the convention center, you've got like knockoff brands and and just sort of things that, you know, you're like, why, why, why would anybody make this? Um, so anyway, so that's the convention center. That's the sort of experience. So for me on the, so, well, let me start off by saying, um, as far as the people attending, there are exhibitors. So there are people who are showing off stuff. There are investors and there's also the media slash influencers, you know, and so everybody's kind of got their own thing for the people that work there. So I've spoken to the people at different booths like Samsung and Sony, they basically their entire week, they don't get to really see much because they're working the whole time. They're at their booth. And some of those booths, like the Samsung, basically they call it the Samsung City. It's such a massive, it's such a, it's so huge. Like, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just such a big area trying to eat. So if you're attending CES, you, you want to bring your own snacks. You want to bring your own uh, water bottles. You want to you want to be prepared to spend the whole day there because going back and forth between your hotel is basically going to be impossible unless you're staying at the Venetian. So in the convention center, that's where all the kind of main stuff is. And if you go over to the Sands, which is the convention center in the Venetian Hotel and Casino, there are other sort of major, I guess, I, I don't want to say major, but there, the bigger brands are there and there's more of the showcase stuff on that side. The bonus of that is there's a lot of free food there, and a lot of free drink. So it's worth it to get over there, but taking a shuttle and then getting back to the convention center from there, it takes... To get on one of those shuttles is going to take you at least at least forty five minutes. Um, the drive there is about you know half an hour with traffic, and then about forty five minutes to get a shuttle back. So it's pretty much you got to plan out your day. You got to pick your halls. You got North Central and South Hall in the convention center, and then you've got the Venetian stuff over there. So, uh, and then you have this outdoor park. I don't typically spend much time in the outdoor park, so that's basically the layout. So. What everybody's doing, basically, they're the exhibitors. So they're the people that are, you know, Sony or whatever. They're working at their booth. They're either showing off stuff, you know, trying to maybe create some buzz with some cool product that they have or feature, uh, trying to get investors. There are the investors who are also running around looking for stuff that they might want to obviously invest in. And CES is really a showcase uh, for that. And then there are the media and influencers and the guys kind of like me. So... I can only really speak to that experience. So for me, my day begins really actually, well, the funny thing is, is so when you get, when you get a, a media pass to CES, that application or basically that process takes place in July. So they open that up in July or August. Um, so that, you know, once you, once you get approved, 
uh, you get added to the media email list. And I am not kidding when I say I get at least, you know, at convention time, 150 emails a day. I mean, the, it's so crazy. So the first couple of emails that you get, which are going to be like in October, I want to say, maybe late September, you reply to those, you know, it's like, oh, that's cool. I'll check that out. I'll check that out. Maybe set up a meeting or two. And then as November approaches, it's just like email, email. It's, it's just so much. It's, it's hard to keep track. So you make, you know, everybody's making all these appointments. There's a couple of stuff that you're like, okay, that you, that I know that I definitely want to see. One of the benefits of the media pass is you get early access to stuff. So the other day, uh, Derek and I, we, we got to test drive. BMW had some cars out there. So we got to test drive the the i8 around Las Vegas. And when I say around Las Vegas, we kind of got lost at, around the convention center. We were following the other guy who also had a, I think it was an i8 or something like that. So we were following him. He got lost. So we got lost. Traffic was really bad. Um, then we got rerouted into the wrong part of the convention center. It was it was pretty funny. So anyway, so we get, you know, early access to that kind of stuff. So uh, we get to run around the booths. We get uh, the tours, all of those things before it's opened up to the public, which is really nice. But scheduling that out, I mean, there's three days. Technically, this year, it's four days. Um, it's still going on right now as I'm recording. But uh, it, it, it ends early today. So basically, you've got three days. If you want to do that early media access stuff, that's usually from 8 until 9 a.m. So there's only so much you can do. You can really pick and choose three things. I mean, so because um, it's such a large area to cover physically. Once you're in one hall, getting from one hall to the other is a solid 20-minute walk, 15, 20-minute walk, um, depending on what part of, of each hall you're in. You get all those emails, and then based on those emails, set up a lot of meetings, and pretty much nobody makes their meeting. Uh, so you have to kind of pick and choose. That's what I learned this year, and I think I did a better job of that. So that's kind of the convention experience. As you walk around the Las Vegas Strip, everybody's got a CES badge on. I mean, it's really just... It, it's kind of amazing at how many people actually attend. Convention center is massive. The food is terrible. Uh, I mean, you know, there are decent food options. There are even some. It's funny that they all sell Beyond Burger, even though Impossible Burger comes to CS and debuted. They debuted a new, a new fake pork uh, this time. So that's kind of fun. It's always funny to me. I was like, well, why don't why don't they sell uh, Impossible Burgers here? It's, it seems like a good idea. So there are some vegetarian and vegan options. Um, but it's pretty much your standard burgers, Asian food, um, nothing really good. Forget about visiting Starbucks unless you are willing to wait over an hour for coffee. There had to be in line 500 people yesterday for Starbucks. So forget about that. You you better get your coffee uh, well ahead of time. And if you're staying at any one of the casinos, all the Starbucks are going to be full as well. So if you just kind of got to pick and choose which Starbucks you go to or whatever coffee, get that. Or if you happen to be in the Venetian, if you plan that out well, maybe get some lunch there because there's everybody's giving out free coffee. Usually the bigger vendors like uh, Intel have a little coffee stand. And just because it's hard to get access, like it, the, the amount of time you wait in line for all that stuff is, is, just, is just so long that it, you know, you got to kind of plan out when you're going to eat. For us on the media side, it's a lot of running around. So I'm on the floor yeah, having meetings, and then I'm running back to shoot a video and then maybe record a podcast. It's been pretty much nonstop for the last three days. I've got three or four videos in queue about some of the coolest travel tech. So 
going more into the travel tech side of things. Um, sorry if this podcast seems all over the place, but it, really that's how this week has felt. It's just been go, go, go. But like I said, CES is really uh, a concept show. So there's a lot of concept stuff and Derek and I were talking about it and there he was saying, you know, there are a lot of these things that are just never going to be products. And, you know, I said, yeah, that's 90% of CES. This is stuff that is never going to be made into a product. Sony, for example, uh, debuted an electric car, sort of a one-off electric car, which, you know, they're never going to make an electric car. Uh, although the car, that first of all, the style of the car was, it was this sleek sort of matte silver electric vehicle. Um, I didn't really get the specs on it because, you know, they're never going to make it, but it was it was pretty cool. I, I'd say if, if you're going to draw some attention, that was the one thing to do it. But there were a couple of products I want to get into that actually are going to be debuted this year. Things and technologies that I can see being very useful to a lot of travelers, a lot of people, and that are going to probably, you're going to see it actually this year. So one of the things that uh, one of you actually alerted me to was Delta had a booth here. It was the first time that Delta, that I think any of the major airlines had a presence at CES. Um, the travel presence in general at CES this year was a lot smaller than it was last year. So there wasn't a lot of specific travel stuff, but you know we're all on the go so much that travel tech really now is just tech. So I went over to Delta and they had a few couple of small things that they showed me that they were debuting. One is a new technology that it's basically a background technology, but it's supposed to reduce flight delays, which was kind of neat. You know, sort of the behind the scenes thing that probably doesn't get a lot of credit. It's probably going to be very useful for a lot of people. And then uh, a couple of other features they had. So they really want to integrate their Delta app, something like where you tag your luggage with your phone. So you tag your luggage um, and based on uh, that, when you tag your luggage, it's going to know your address, so your destination, so your hotel or your home or wherever. And that way you can skip baggage claim altogether. Delta is coming out with this service where the your bags would just arrive at your hotel or home. It sounds like a great idea. I don't know quite how they'll implement it. It seems like a lot of people driving to a lot of places. It also seems like an opportunity for a lot of lost luggage. Uh, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt now. It seems like you know, it was something a little bit forward thinking. Something else that was really simple that I thought would be very useful is being able to order food and drinks. Uh, from the touchscreen, you know, from the seat in front of you. Again, customizing a little bit more the experience. And this year at CES, if I'm going to make a prediction about the future, one theme that kept coming up over and over was feedback, was customizing, using software to customize an experience for everybody. But what Delta debuted this year was something that not only customizes uh, a user experience from a software perspective, but also from a physical hardware perspective. So they had this screen that they're calling Parallel Reality. And what it is, is it's a screen that 100 people could look at and all of the 100 people standing next to each other would see a different screen with the naked eye. So this doesn't require any kind of glasses or any kind of headset or anything like that. Basically what they did, so the demo at Delta was they gave us a fake boarding pass, so we created like a fake boarding pass for ourselves, and we would scan this code in. The first demo was essentially just set up so that you could stand at one location, and based on that location, it would show you a, a different screen, which was really cool, obviously. It was just really interesting. So there were four of us, we were all set, you know, standing at a slightly different angle, 
And we would all see, like, on my boarding pass, I elected to go to Japan, for example. And I got to pick a fake language. So they said, pick a language that you don't know. So I picked Japan and Japanese. So I'm looking at the screen, and I see a picture of Japan. And they're looking at the screen. And then when I say they, I mean, they're like a meter apart, like three feet apart from us. So everybody next to me, so Derek was next to me three feet apart. And I, he was looking at, like, Mexico, for example, because that's what he chose on his boarding pass or whatever. We were all seeing a different thing, even though we were all looking at the same screen, which was really cool. They had these mirrors set up behind us, so this huge mirror panel. And there's a video of this that I put out on YouTube the other day. So if you want to check that out, you can actually see all of this. But those mirrors behind us would let you see what everybody else could see. So the mirrors were all angled at where, you know, where we were standing and angled. And they could, you know, that way from one location, you could see what everybody else was seeing. So it was really cool. It was basically a TV and has these pixels, and the, each pixel was about the size of, I'd say, about half a centimeter thick. And it was a display that, I don't remember the specs offhand, but it was a pretty large display. Uh, I would imagine that it was probably uh, about, you know, eight feet by six feet, I want to say. So, like, two meters by three meters almost. So it was a pr pretty large screen. And what Delta wants to do is um, they want to implement this in an airport, which they're going to do in the summer. So moving over to the second demo, what was really a lot cooler was you scan, each of us scanned that fake boarding pass. So it had a QR code on it. We would, fake the, we would scan the fake pass and then walk into where they had another one of these screens set up. And where the screen was set up, what the cool thing was, was as you walked, there was a camera on above us that was tracking us. It wasn't using facial recognition. It was just tracking the shape. So when you scan in the QR code, that code then sends a signal up to the, to the camera. The camera then starts following you, if you will. Um, it's just a stationary camera, but it's tracking you. So it was tracking all of us. And based on the QR code that we scanned, as we walked around, we could see that screen based on where we were, we were moving. And what I mean by that is, so in the first demo, it was kind of stationary. It was set, each angle was set. And so we could move around and kind of get an idea of how the technology worked, but it wasn't following us. So the screen wasn't changing based on where we were moving specifically. It was just based on a specific location. So if you stood in the center, you saw one thing. If you stood on the right, you saw another thing. If you stood on the left, you saw another thing. Whereas in the second demo, it would follow you around. So as I was walking, or as all four of us were walking around, we were all seeing a different screen. I, it said, hello, it said my name. It was all in Japanese because that's the language that I, I chose. And we were all walking around. It was one of the coolest things. It was so seamless. It looked like the screen was changing. So it, it did look like the screen was, um, you know, like a TV screen, with, you know, how it just changes images. It just kind of, it looked like it was kind of fading in and out of images in the first demo. And in the second one, it was really very seamless. So I could not tell at all that, for example, Derek was seeing a message that said, hello, Derek, in you know, Chinese or whatever. And I was seeing my name, hello, hello, Anil, in Japanese. I couldn't tell that that's what they were seeing. And we were all kind of walking around, changing positions, and the screen was changing to show us different things. And so I, I got to talk to some of the engineers who created this, so... It's misapplied science. So they're working with Delta. Delta is really interested in working with startups. That was one of the main themes that they wanted to highlight at this CES. 
And so basically he explained that a typical pixel on a TV or on a laptop or on your phone emits a color of light. Uh, so it emits a, a, a one color for every pixel. And so if the pixel, let's say, is red, it's red from whatever angle you view it at. Uh, the same thing with your TV. So everybody sees the same thing. In this case, what their pixels do is it allows you to, basically each pixel can show you a different color based on a different angle. And what that means is that you could have, you could be sitting right next to somebody and seeing a completely different screen. And what Delta envisions, so they're going to debut this technology in the, Del in the Delta, in the Detroit airport this summer. And they want to tie it to the Delta app. So you get your boarding pass, you scan it in the app, or maybe the app is tied to you somehow. And as you walk past this screen, you know how normally you walk past the screen, let's say you're on a layover and you want to check your gate, double check that and make sure it's the flight's on time or if there's a delay. And you've got to kind of like look through, you know, 40 or 50 different things and all, the, all you know, you got to go down the list, you know, as, as 10 other people are crowded around the screen. So what this screen would do is basically turn this massive screen into a personalized screen just for you. So you'd see your flight time, your gate, whether it's delayed or not, maybe food options. You could tailor it to, you know, give you food options. Also, if you don't happen to speak English, I mean, this is the Detroit airport, but if you don't, if you speak, you know, if you only speak Russian, uh, it would be able to show you the information in the language, in your native language. Um, so there are all these advantages. And so it would, I imagine that it makes going through an airport a lot quicker because as you walk by, you can, you just look at that screen. You don't have to stop and look because they can put on a massive display. They can use the full display to customize a message and information for you uh, specifically. Like I said, it was a very impressive technology. It was one of those things that I was like, oh, that's kind of a good idea. Uh, it's also one of those things that they'll probably use for tailored advertising. I, I can imagine that. But I can also see the benefits of it. I, I think there was a Google phone, actually. I want to say Google, or there was a, a, a phone man manufacturer that came out with a phone that could kind of do this. It didn't do it very well. The display resolution was terrible. That technology it was kind of just like a blip. It happened, and then we didn't hear about it again. But it seems like, and usually with those technologies, you see something, you're like, oh, what is that? That's terrible implementation. But that's like the first gen prototype stuff and then it seems like now it's it's really it's not perfected yet because in between every pixel there's this thick bezel so um you know at a distance on a large screen it's not too bad but if you get close up you it's really noticeable but when i spoke to the to the developers there they said that you know the next gen they're obviously they're hoping to shrink down those those bezels so the, the little space in between each pixel improve the resolution and so on but for and they've been working on this for four years, and they said when Delta debuted this, they wanted to make sure that it was ready for actual use. They didn't want just a concept. And I, I, I think honestly, they've they've achieved that. It'll be interesting to see this uh, as it's made public uh, or in public use at the Detroit airport coming up. Hopefully, I'll get to see that in person. But a lot of you may actually see that before me if you happen to live or be flying through Detroit. Speaking of concepts with applied practicality, I would say I visited the Jabra booth. Jabra is traditionally a microphone company, so they really kind of made their name in the market by making headsets. So, you know, the standard headset that you see, like people using call centers and so on with the 
little microphone that reaches around to the you know to your mouth and then you know, you know the headset um so they've got a heads they basically are microphone professionals they also have a hearing aid division and they also make pretty good headphones so i got to try out their 85h active noise canceling headphones last year and i was really impressed um one one thing i like about jabra is is they they're kind of a this is not an ad by the way but they're very they're when you talk to the, the people there they they seem to get it um not only in terms of where their position is in the market and what they can do better but also as to what people actually want so how they can actually improve the products with competition like Bose and Sony and one of the guys there even told me he said you know we're not as good as Bose or Sony like our noise canceling is not as good as theirs which you know in my review I mentioned as well it's not as good he said but we're right up there and we're working on it and I, I, I love that. I, I just love that honesty. I, I just, you know, you don't hear a lot of that from a lot of companies and you also don't hear a lot of that at CES especially. Um, so it was it was good to see that. But they did debut a couple of new earbuds and headphones. And by the way, they're 65T headphones. These little earbuds are, are probably the best wireless earbuds you can get that don't have active noise canceling. They're excellent. They've got a new 75 H, I believe it's Elite 75 Active H, I believe it's called. The sports version of those improved sound, but mostly waterproofing, you know, sweatproofing and that. And then they improved and updated their Move uh, headphones. So if you've seen, that's up on my YouTube channel from earlier this, earlier last year, earlier last decade, actually. Um, so I reviewed the Move, and one of the complaints I had about the Move was you couldn't move the ear cups, so it was basically... It wasn't foldable at all, so it wasn't very portable, which, you know, obviously for headphones called the Move, they should be portable. But the second thing of that was um, they rested right on your ear, and it wasn't very comfortable after a while. I don't like on-ear headphones. They they are very uncomfortable, I find. I like over-ear headphones, ones where the ear cup sits around your ear and not actually on it. So I, I find that very, very uncomfortable. I think a lot of people do... So what they've done with this new 45H headphone. So what they've done with that is they've turned that cup. They made it larger, first of all, so it distributes the weight a little bit better. And the headband is a lot less stiff, so it's not putting as much pressure on your ear. And it's made of memory foam. A lot more comfortable. You can also fold the ear cups sort of in so that it's a little bit flatter. And I find that it's a little bit more of a portable... uh, It's a little bit more of a portable headphone but what was really interesting to me with these headphones and this is not headphone specific so what was really cool to me was they had this huge uh, large noise isolated booth it was kind of nice to actually just go in there and you just close the door and you can't hear this this crazy commotion from the outside like the blaring music and the 150,000 people talking and all that stuff from the show so it was kind of nice to go in there so they create this large noise isolated room and inside that room, they've got these these new headphones, and these are mid tier headphones. I mean, they're nothing, they're nothing exceptional. They're I think they're eighty nine or ninety nine dollars when they come out in March. They're not, you know, they're not flagship headphones, but decent enough headphones. So they had us uh, use what they're calling their my my sound app, which I think it's just an updated version of their app. And what was really interesting, so Ajabra, like I mentioned, has a hearing aid division. They use microphones. So what they've done is in this My Sound app, you put on the headphones and 
It takes about three minutes for this to, to be set up. They play tones from the right side, from your right ear, and then your left ear. When you hear a tone, you just tap the screen. Each tone, I think that each test for each ear is about like, you know, a minute. And so you're listening, you're listening, you're listening. Tap screen, tone, tap screen, tone. And what they tell you there is you're going to listen to the music now twice. You're going to listen to it with the standard iPhone default, just music. You know, you just listen to music and they play some music. And it's good, you know, like iPhone sound quality. And then they say, now the second time we play the music, you're going to hit this My Sound button on the app. And now we've analyzed your basically the way you hear. So that's based on your gender, which you enter, your age, so, you know, the, the year you were born, and then the frequencies that uh, you entered when you were taking the test. So basically it's it, it realizes or it analyzes what you hear well and what you don't hear well, and it lifts and decreases that sound profile based on those sound waves. And as soon as you hit that button and listen to the music again, two things jumped out at me. First of all, I thought, and I, I, I just assumed that the volume was just turned up to maybe, not double, but I want to say like the volume was increased by 50%. And the second thing was the sound was just so much richer. It was such a huge, huge difference. I wish I could, you know, play it to you or give you what that sounds like, obviously, you just have to kind of try it, I think. There's no other way to explain it. So I asked the guy, I said, was there a difference? I was like, and and Derek was with me, and it was just like, yeah, that was crazy. Did you, did the volume increase? That was my very first question. He said, nope, it's the exact same volume. The only difference is we've increased those frequencies that you don't hear very well and decreased probably the ones that you do hear very well. And we've tailored the sound, the music that's coming to your ear for the way you hear. And he did note that he said, this doesn't indicate that you have hearing loss. This is not the purpose of this. This doesn't, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have hearing loss. He said, two of the biggest components for how you hear is your gender and your age. So men and women hear things differently. He said they have different sound profiles, essentially, that their ears can pick up, higher tones, lower tones, and so on. And obviously your age, as you age, you don't hear higher frequencies quite as well and so they're boosting that based on that as well as the test that you took earlier it wasn't louder but it did sound like there was a noticeable volume increase but i guess that that was just improving the frequencies that i can hear well and the second thing was this sound was so much richer i mean when i listen to the sound with regular with just regular kind of you know using the standard iphone thing it was like listening to music with an with your hand covered over your ear. And the the second part was like being in a concert hall. It was very stark. I've got a video about that coming up. So um, you can check that out on YouTube. You can see what the demo was like. But it's really straightforward and simple. It's really just open the MySound app, listen for the tones, tap. Once it's set up, you're good to go from there. I assume that, you know, it's just a one-time setup. What I really thought that was cool about it was it makes those Jabra headphones, which are mid-tier headphones, maybe, you know, budget line headphones, they have higher, more quality headphones as well. But basically, it can take headphones that maybe the hardware is not as great and just increase and improve the sound so, so much, which through software, through free software, the basic comes with the, uh, the, the, the headphones and that can save you a bunch of money. I just... 
I really thought that was a very innovative. That technology they're going to debut, I think, by March or by May, I want to say. So that's actually going to come out. So that's actually something that you can try. I hope, I hope that it's it's a situation where, and I assume it where you can just download the app and use those on any headphones, um, because it's really just, you know, it's just it, it will improve the quality of any headphone that you have. It also incre- increase the um, the noise isolation. So these are not active noise canceling headphones that I was listening to. If you've ever used noise canceling headphones, you know that the way they work is they essentially use microphones on the outside of the headphones to analyze the sound and then create a negative sound wave, essentially the a wave that will cancel that wave out. So it cancels the sound around you out so that you can hear what you're listening to better. What this my sound technology did was it it didn't make these active noise canceling headphones. That's that that's not what's being done here. But because the sound was so much improved it really improved the noise isolation of these headphones. So I was like snapping in the booth, clapping, you know, trying to see the difference, and it, it made a big difference. So active noise canceling headphones are usually a couple hundred dollars. I mean, they're usually, you're starting at, you know, for a decent pair, it's going to be over $200, just flat out, easily two two fifty. But you can easily imagine that you get these $89 headphones, say you don't have the budget or you don't want to pay for noise canceling, you have this my sound feature and you've got now way better noise isolation so much so that it's just it's going to make your next flight just a lot more comfortable so i thought that was a really cool technology i i'm really interested in things that i thought it was a small tweak but it's a really effective and innovative one and i'm glad to see that it's going to be out in for your ears in a couple of months speaking of user feedback i was walking around omron display or the Omron exhibit. So Omron is a company that makes robotics and AI. And they're very famous here at CS because they've got this robotic ping pong table where you can play against a robotic arm that analyzes your movements and you can play ping pong against it. Now, it's not designed as uh, to be competitive. It's designed to improve the human experience and to improve a human as a ping pong player. Essentially, what this ping pong table does is as it plays against you, it analyzes how good or bad you are, analyzes whether you go left, you go right, whether you're center, and your skill level, and it plays to that skill level, but it notices and it detects as you improve, it's going to sort of kick up the skill level just enough to help you get better. There are two sensors that are facing you from this actual, so where there would actually be a net is really like a four inch or about a centimeter uh, screen and sort of like a thick thing where they have had sensors pointing at you those sensors are analyzing you know how your arms and shoulders body move that kind of thing and there's a camera at top and there's a camera on the side and those are all tracking you but you don't really notice the presence of any of those sensors of the camera the only thing is that that not being a net is a little bit different so you've kind of hit the ball just a little bit higher to get over that thicker net I guess, quote in quotes, net in between, uh, and you can play against it. So I got to uh, shoot some of the robotics behind the scenes. I got to see some of the engineers. All the engineers, by the way, are like top-level ping-pong players now. So they they play against this machine. Uh, it's called the Forpheus. So they play against the Forpheus to train it all the time, and they were telling me that those guys now are 
probably some of the best ping pong players that you'll find. I mean, they're really good just because they play 30 minutes a day. Uh, the machine helps them improve. This year, so this year, the major improvement was there are a couple of things. So it can detect your mood, and it does this. So it detects your mood, whether you're happy, whether you're frustrated, whether you're angry, you, you know, whether what kind of mood you're in. And based on that, it's going to maintain or, or decrease or increase the skill levels to make sure that you have a fun experience. There's also a smile meter, so it's keeping track of how, how much you're smiling as well as your heartbeat, so it's keeping track of your pulse. Again, nothing is attached to you, so there's no... I mean, it's keeping... It, I asked the guys, like, how, how does it know your pulse? And said, well, they've got infrared cameras there, so detecting body heat, but also the cameras can detect movement and i'm I, they didn't they weren't able to quite explain that but i think essentially that it's looking at key parts of your body probably your neck i'm gonna guess maybe maybe i'm wrong if i'm wrong just tweet me at fox nomad and let me know how specifically how that works but i think what the camera is doing is it's a sensitive uh, high resolution camera it's noticing your heartbeat based on you know neck movements and things like that so it's giving you your pulse it would also show you your smile meter uh, which was kind of cool and also your blink rate. And my blink rate was, when I was playing, was like one or two blinks. It was like so low, and I realized how focused I was. The first couple times, like maybe I was nervous playing against the machine. It was a little bit odd to not have a, a physical body in front of you. So the the robot kind of stands over that side, the other side of the ping pong table, and it's just a paddle on a robotic arm. So there's no person there. And that kind of threw me off a little bit. Like it's... It's hard to play ping pong. It's hard to like serve a ping, at least for me. It's hard to kind of you know serve a ping pong when you don't have like a physical body across from you. It's just kind of like it looks like open space. It's just like a a paddle essentially like floating there. So anyway, I got to play with it, and after a few terrible serves in the beginning, I start. I felt like I started to get better. But what I realized was maybe the machine was adjusting for my gameplay. So whereas I'm I'm not the best ping pong player, but what I started to notice was I started to have these longer volleys. And, you know, there was even a point where I'm like playing down the center. So I'm like, oh, I'm going down the center. This thing is probably going to shoot me to the right or the left. And it, and it did. And so I noticed that as each play happened, I got longer and longer and longer volleys. And one of the interesting things was I actually got a couple of points on the machine, too. That doesn't mean I'm better than a robotic AI. I mean, it was letting me score. So it was kind of letting me win. So it was improving. Basically, I think it was trying to train me to use different angles, to use this forehand or backhand or whatever to 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 beat the machine and to help me improve against potentially another human player. The Amran did, you know, when I spoke to them, they said this is not a competitive device. It's not designed, first of all, it's not designed to make pro ping pong players. It's not it. It's not really a training tool for professionals, but what it's designed to do is really improve. And their robotics and AI company, it's really designed to improve the connection of feedback between man and machine. And so they want to in, in, include this in a lot of different types of devices and robotics, where the machine can actually take feedback from you and help you be better at whatever it is you happen to be doing. You know, in my mind, I had this like. They could have this in like a, you know, with these cameras, they could set this up like in a kickboxing gym, analyze your kick, help you improve your kicking, 
the future me was like, man, in like 10 years or 100 years or whatever, I don't know, you could have like a, a robot, like a jujitsu robot. So you could have a jujitsu robot that you, you train with and and it would like adapt and help you get better and, uh, you know, help you drill and, you know, push you, but just push you in the most efficient way. It was all very interesting. So it was pretty cool. I got to play uh, robotic ping pong against the robot. That video is coming out probably in the next day or two or maybe today. Um, so that's also another cool thing that I got to check out. Some of the cool tech that I got to see at CES. A small other thing that I got to see was the microphone that I record on now. This is the Audio-Technica 2100. This microphone is excellent because it's ultra durable. It has pretty good sound quality, I think. It's also designed as a sort of... The, the direction of this microphone is such that it only really picks up the sound that's like a fist. You want to have like your, your fist apart from the microphone. Anything on the sides or behind it or too far away really is not going to get picked up at all, which is really convenient for me, which is why I don't have a video version of this podcast because a lot of times I'm going to be recording this on the road, like I'm here in Las Vegas right now, getting lighting set up, getting audio set up for that long of a time in multiple locations where I don't know exactly where I'm going to be shooting from all the time is difficult. So this microphone is great for that. So right now I can hear they they are cleaning the next room next to me. I can hear that, but that's not going to be picked up on the microphone. This is a great microphone and it's only $60, uh, which is also great. So Audio-Technica debuted a newer version of this microphone. It's very popular. It's a great podcasting microphone. It's a great travel microphone. If there's one microphone that you're going to get if you're shopping microphones, I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of you are probably tech heads and probably more than a few influencers who are listening to this. This is the microphone to get a good starter microphone because of the durability, because of the price, and because of the sound profile. Audio-Technica is coming out with the new 2100 that's coming out in a couple of months. I got to see of uh, I got to see the debut of that. I'm going to get to probably get my hands on that in a couple of uh, weeks, hopefully, to do a review. So that was exciting for me. Basically, the new microphone has improved sound quality, much improved, sort of, just the sound profile is, profile is a lot better. You can charge it over USB-C. This microphone, the one I'm recording on now, has like an on-off switch, which is great. I like the physical switch, but the light is on whether it's on or off, which is kind of confusing. So they've got a new electronic switch that has different lights for whether it's on, off, or recording. Obviously, it seems like a small thing, but that's great. So that was another cool thing that I got to see. I got to get to the, the Samsung booth, check out some of their huge 8K displays. There were a lot of 8K displays this year at CES all over the place. That was pretty cool. Uh, one of the greatest things that I like about if you're going to get those high-res 8K displays, they have ones that act as, as picture frames so they can show you any image. They're basically more static image, so it's not moving image. And I think because it's not moving image, the, the, the picture quality to me just seemed a lot better. So it was kind of cool. Again, a very expensive piece of tech just to show pictures on your wall so you could just buy a painting. But, you know, this was pretty cool. As far as drones, I saw one two-armed drone. It was like a small drone. So imagine like a DJI drone that has four propeller arms that come out. There was one that had two arms. It was kind of cool, but it seems like a lot of moving parts. That's probably not not going to be worth it. I did get to stop by Dell, and they were debuting their folding screen laptops. 
So folding screens are kind of a thing. So Samsung obviously has the Galaxy Fold. I got to check that out in person as well. So there's going to be a video on that coming up. But these were laptops where the whole front was a screen. So you have your traditional laptop with the screen that you look at and then the keyboard on the bottom. This was screen on the top you look at and screen on the bottom, no keyboard. They had two versions of this. One was one that was an entire screen that could fold. So just imagine on your laptop, instead of having a hinge there, imagine that that hinge is a screen that goes from the very top of the screen of your laptop all the way down past the keyboard to the bottom of the laptop. So they debuted that. Folding screens are those things that were a big deal last year at CES. They're kind of popping up into the market, but it's not really a tech that's ready yet. I mean, they had to recall the, the first fold because of people were tearing the screen and the hinge had issues and so on. So it's not a technology that's not quite there yet. The Dell laptop was pretty cool. It was the largest folding screen that I had seen. It was something that I could, I got to talk to the, the engineers and, the, you know, it was definitely a concept, but one that I could see, you know, making it maybe into prime time, like five years, probably. I, I can't imagine before that. A couple of reasons for why that is. One, both of the, the bezels, so the the bottom part and the top part of the screen had these thick bezels, these thick black bars all around it. And on a traditional laptop, you know, the screen part is usually much thinner than the keyboard part because the keyboard part has all the internals like the the hard drive, you know, the, the motherboard, all that stuff. Whereas in the screen, you don't have a lot of electronics, so it can be a lot thinner. These folding screen ones, they've got a lot more internals on both sides, so it's a lot thicker. It's a it was about almost a centimeter thick on both sides, which is pretty thick for a laptop. And I noticed that when when you folded it, so they weren't allowing a lot of people to actually handle this folding screen laptop. And my guess is because it's not entirely too durable. You've got to be very careful with it. So when they fold it, first of all, the screen does fold. There's a slight discoloration in the middle, which you can see. You can kind of see that on the Galaxy Fold as well. But because the screen is smaller, it has a better resolution than the Dell one. It's not quite as bright. It's got a black background usually as a screen. So when you fold the Galaxy Fold, you can still see that discoloration, but it's not as noticeable. With the Dell, it was it was a lot more noticeable. Also because they were demoing writing documents on this kind of folding screen. So you're typing basically on a screen on the bottom, and then you know, you've got the word processor, you've got you know, word or whatever open on the top. And because it's a white screen, you notice that discoloration more. And when they close the laptop, that thickness, oh, it's a thick laptop. It's just thick, first of all, to start off with. And then when it closes around the fold, then basically that fold doesn't close completely. So I, I want to say it's like a teardrop shape, if that makes any sense. Again, I got a video about that. That's up on YouTube. But you've got the teardrop, so it's not... It's not quite folding like you could fold a piece of paper. You know, you can just really fold it tight. It's not like that. It's more like trying to fold a, a piece of poster board without really pushing down on both sides. So there was that. But what I thought was a lot more useful, or at least a lot more practical, was Dell had, again, a dual screen. So you have the screen on the top, and then the whole bottom of the laptop is a screen. I've I've thought for a long time that that's really kind of the future of, laptops i really do think that there are a couple of advantages to that so you could you know first of all for languages so if you want to change your keyboard let's say you want to switch from english to chinese or turkish or whatever 
right now there's really no good option for you. You either have to buy a separate physical keyboard, which is, you know, annoying and cumbersome, or you have to go into the settings of your laptop and then match the keys. So like, for example, in Turkish on Mac, Mac or iOS, if you change from like a U to the U with the two dots on it, then you've got to, you've got to switch the keyboard and then like the bracket key becomes that key. And then you've got to hit control and all this other stuff. It's not, you get used to it, but it's not ideal. What you could do with a screen keyboard is you could just change the keyboard that you see on the bottom. While I'm editing videos, for example, using Final Cut, I'm not limited to just the, the laptop screen. I could have the screen on the bottom. I could shift around maybe where I want the functions of the software. So if I want to put all the, you know, the filter stuff on the left and then let's say the voice stuff on the right or whatever, you've got a lot more screen real estate. So what Dell had was it wasn't a folding screen, but it was two screens that were attached by a traditional hinge. It looked a lot more feasible. It looked a lot more practical. Probably that's the type of laptop that we're going to see coming out more in the near future, like two to uh, three years probably that you're going to actually see the, the the first production models of that. Again, both sides of the laptop were thick because when you have that much, you've got to put the, the screen hardware in both sides, the display hardware in both sides, but then you've also got to use that space for the internals of the laptop. So if you're going to be using... You know, if you gotta you gotta put a hard drive somewhere, you've gotta put the memory somewhere. And when you have dual screens like that, if especially if both of them have to be touchscreen, you have to have both as a touchscreen because you're using one as the keyboard and if you know, you could flip it both ways, so they've both gotta be touchscreen. That makes the screen a little bit thicker as well. Plus you've gotta put in the traditional laptop components in there also. So both sides of this dual screen laptop were about I wanna say like uh, you know, they were about uh, half a centimeter, you know, a centimeter thick. When you fold that down, it's pretty thick. And it's a pretty heavy laptop, I'll mention. Again, this is a concept thing that is not going to make it into production yet. But I think like the Delta screen technology, like the Jabra MySound technology, these are things that we're going to see improved on. And these are things that we're going to actually see in products in the coming years. Obviously, any tech that we have now has got to go through that concept phase. It's got to go through that, all right. This is just a proof of concept. We can do it, but this is a pretty terrible implementation. But now that we know that we can do it, let's see Let's see how we can get this better and actually make it useful. That's one of the main takeaways that I had from CES this year. It was really a lot of fun. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. I'm going to be in Las Vegas for just a few more days. We've got a couple more videos and things to shoot, and then I'm headed out to Asia, so the next regular episode of the podcast is going to be out next week and that's going to be from a country in asia so no no spoilers you just have to uh, listen but if you've gotten this far one thing that i'm going to ask you is if you can just take a few seconds and give this podcast a five-star review on wherever you listen to podcasts so if you're listening to this on apple Podcasts or google Podcasts, stitcher spotify and all the other all the other places where you can get and download this podcast if you could please give five stars to the Fox Nomad podcast, I would really appreciate it. If you have any other questions about some of the tech or about CES or just anything in general, you can always tweet at me at Fox Nomad. If you want to find me, there's you can go to my website, email me. There's plenty of ways to get in touch. So thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for your feedback. I really appreciate it. I've gotten some really great feedback over the last two weeks from the last episode. 
So thank you very much. I appreciate that. I hope you have a great couple of days with lots of travel and tech, and I will talk to you in a couple of days. Thanks again for listening, and I will talk to you in the next episode.